Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Professor Kahindi Andrews. Kahindi is an academic activist and author, the Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University, the Director of the Centre for Critical Social Research, founder of the Organisation of Black Unity and co-chair of the Black Studies Association. Curiously though, he's a white man from Austria. <laughs> no, not really. He's an uh, English man who is, as you can tell from his curriculum vitae, black now me and kinde have done a few things together now i think he's a really brilliant and important voice in the conversation about i would say equality and politics way beyond the subject of race which is obviously what's quite rightly dominating the news agenda and a lot of social media space but what i like about kahindi andrews work is that he's going he sees it on a sort of a global level and you, you can't get into a discourse about race without pretty soon hitting up against economics, capitalism and the, I mean, I've got to say it, the profundity of change required for there to be meaningful and progress isn't even the word. I'm afraid to say the word is revolution. So he's an amazing person to talk to because he does all of this in a very kind of, you know, like given the seriousness of the subject, I think he does an incredible job of communicating humorously and openly. So uh, if you ain't read any of his stuff, you should. Back to Black, retelling Black radicalism for the 21st century and resisting racism. Is that, that's all one, that's a long title. I mean, I refer back to Black, keep it simple. Uh, race inequality and the black supplementary school movement so like he's um yeah read some of his stuff man he's fantastic and yeah look well this podcast will give you a bit of an intro so here's some comments from our last episode with kasha urbaniak snap rock and pop go i listen to at rusty rockets on at here luminary every day if i can what a wealth of incredible insight and perspective from us vulnerable humans. Anyway, I just wanted to tweet because of the beautiful reflection delivered by Kasia Avaniak about Russell's journey, spirit and humility. And that was by me. That's why I said the name at the beginning. Greg, who's using sort of like three lines as the E in his name, which I like, says, At Rusty Rockets, I wanted your conversation with Kasia to go on forever. Like you, I've been born with a tricky mix of feminine and masculine traits. Mate, I ain't got a tricky mix. <laughs> what do you mean a tricky mix? I ain't got a tricky mix. <laughs> Is that a new nickname for my reproductive area? My tricky mix. But I was actually talking to a gay mate of mine. Yeah, that's right. And he said, and I, and I realised, as I said, because we was we was weeing in the garden, right? And I goes, uh, I goes, we where you want? Just put your reproductive. And then I goes, hmm, even reproductive organ is a heterogeneous. No, not heterogeneous, homogenizing term. Because it's like, this is for reproduction. And that's actually not right. Yeah. <laughs> so before you think about calling me a homophobe, think twice. Yeah. Think twice. Well, no, no one is calling me one. But anyway, just if he was thinking. What are you saying, Jen? Bisexual. Yeah. But are you going to call me a homophobe? You better fucking not. <laughs> Or a misogynist. I don't want to be any of them things. I don't want to be anti-anything. I want to be pro-everyone. I want love moment to moment. Open continually to love. That's it. Which is a pretty radical thing to be. 
It's exhausting also. I've been born with a tricky mix, which is what I call my winky woo, of feminine and masculine traits, and thus often feel unsure of my place in these new discussions and age-old issues. Cash's words were helpful. They certainly were. She was a really brilliant teacher and a beautiful human being. Do you want some personal promo now? Here's some. Go and sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com. We never, ever <laughs> produce any content because the people I work with, who just by coincidence are both women, are too... What, what word would you like? Lazy, inefficient, <laughs> unmotivated, busy. That's the word you'd want, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Too busy with other work to do it. But I'm sticking with my earlier verdicts. Lazy, <laughs> unprofessional, cold-hearted. So, But do sign up to it because one day we will produce some content, I'm sure. Let me know what you think of the podcast on social media if you want. But don't just don't worry. You might like this. It might be appropriate because this is uh, an analysis of power dynamics how, how, particularly how they intersect with race and prejudice so you should put that on social media probably let's have a listen to Under the Skin with Kahindi Andrews a great teacher trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route yes, that's, that, that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand, Under the Skin. Kindy, thanks for doing Under the Skin. Uh, yeah, no, thank you for having me back. Been busy? Uh, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> well, so suddenly people are interested. It is astounding how, interest, how, how much interest there is about race and racism now. So what what is it? What is it different this time? I don't know. It does seem like it might be. It seems like there's a lot of like the the level of interest around this particular killing of George Floyd and the response. And and also honestly some of the debates are a bit different. So I'm been surprised at the lack of condemnation about how the, the violence in the rebellions. I would have thought there'd have been a lot more pushback, but honestly most of the people I spoke to have kind of understood the level of frustration that people have um, and understood that actually the, the violence of the protesters is largely a response because of, of the violence of the state. And that has been a surprise, yeah. I have to say. Yeah, that, yeah I, I suppose you're right. Is it the conditions that this has taken place in, uh, the, the pandemic, the pre-existing... Uh, you know, uh, I would say sort of liberal versus conservative kind of conflict, I suppose is a good, um, well, at least it's a different kind of environment. You know, it's like it's not, it's a kind of a right wing government in power. So, and, and with a relatively liberal media. So I suppose that means that perhaps that accounts for that lack of condemnation. Yeah, but I guess that's dangerous as well. So I suppose, like, if you actually look at it, it's no re the what's happened isn't any different than what happened under Obama. Um, it's just you know because you have Trump and Trump's so awful. I think you do have this kind of liberal response to it, where it's oh, it's not we're not we're not like that. And I think the way it's been painted is it's kind of easy to take that side. Um, even Boris Johnson was that part, uh, Prime Minister's question time saying condemning the killing of George Floyd. Well. That's, I mean, that's mean. I mean, meaningless. I mean, it's, it's an easy thing to condemn because it's obviously so bad. Um, but out of his mouth, it, I don't know. It just, it just didn't sit well. <laughs> I have to say, 
given every, his history, given the this government on immigration, um, even Matt Hancock was said Black Lives Matter on TV yesterday. I mean, it's 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 just kind of it's become a bit banal, I think. That's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I'm that interests me is the way that the the power of uh, call it the mainstream or hegemony or what used to be called patriarchy but i reckon soon will become known as white supremacy the sort of dominant power is pretty good at managing responses to deal with like superficial problems uh, without yielding actual control and the kind of structural change that you have always said is required to meaningfully impact lives yeah and i think you can see that i mean in the uk definitely you can see that where you know widespread condemnation it's terrible things need to change uh, what should change and you know the what should change part of it is likely to be reforms that aren't going to change anything which is usually what happens after this so there's kind of a cycle that with these kind of events where you know something terrible happens everybody reacts and then we just fall back into the patterns that we had previously yeah i was aware myself like i was watching like you know we did that video that done that done well you know me and you talking about it i'm glad to hear that you'll be going on Good morning, Britain. The more I see you with Piers Morgan, the more I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spectacle. I think that's why people like it. Uh, but even yes. on this one, but on this issue, like I think we're probably again. Piers Morgan's not going to say it's great that the police are killing people. I mean, it's it's a kind of easy. It's an easy. It's an easy side to take on this one. Right, I see. There's not much uh, at stake in condemning the filmed murder. Of an uh, of a, of an innocent man, yeah, I I I recognise that. I sort of saw a lot of TV shows like doing, you know, essentially what I'm doing now, speaking to a prominent uh, black academic or civil rights leader. Um, how like when you we spoke last time, you said the answer isn't education, but I sense what I'm from taking the temperature across liberal mainstream media, whether that's online or TV or elsewhere. I can see that that's sort of the way it's moving. Although I am sort of also seeing more talk about white supremacy or what you call white psychosis in a more conver- conversant and normal way. Like people are discussing this. I've seen both sides of it. What do you, what do you think of those two ideas about radicalism, normalization and sort of reappropriation and as a kind of putting, dampening it down? Yeah. Well, one of the worst things about liberal ideas about progress is the idea, that, you know, you don't know about stuff and you educate yourself about it. And then when you have education, then you'll, you'll, you'll change. Right. And that doesn't really work, but, I guess I have to have some hope, got books to sell as well. So, you know, education, go and read some books. And actually, there's one thing that has happened. If you look, um, go on Amazon and try and find any books by black British authors, all of a sudden they're all sold out. So that has been one of the things over this last week uh, where people are engaging in a different... I think the important thing is with education is to, if you really engage in a different way of understanding the world, then something positive has to come out of it. So if we are now having a conversation that is about white supremacy... Uh, that is about structural inequality. Well, that, that can't be a bad thing, right? There has to be a, a starting point for the kind of change we need. Yeah, if it, it's a, a shift from the, oh, I'm not racist, I don't see colour, like that kind of, um, yes, as you say, somewhat banalising perspective. Yeah, I get you. Uh, but still, I mean, but still, I think, so there's a book 
what's uh, the really popular book did really well um why i'm no longer talking to white people about race uh by rainy edo lodge and you know she does talk about the the structural issues and you know what are the stakes and it becomes really big seller but it's also become kind of a something that people just have on their desk so like you just you carry it and you watch it because it's the the covers like really clear and you what you read it on the train uh you recommend it to people it's kind of become a fashion statement so i guess that's what we don't want as well like and I can see some of those trends there as well, where it's like, yeah, we're going to pick up these books, we're going to read, uh, we're going to say we need structural change, but are we actually going to do it? That's another question. I don't know. But on the positive side, if you're not having a the conversation, then nothing's ever going to change, right? Yeah, it's good that there is some fluidity and some freedom of conversation and some like sort of on-screen contrition and people like, I want to learn, I want to be a better ally. Those things seem good and uh like i hope it gets beyond like the sort of virtual signaling stage we were sort of like caught in some quagmire of like on instagram do you post a black square or not you know these are the kind of emblems and uh sort of you know i don't want to say necessarily superficial displays but i i suppose things that don't cost you anything uh, by by uh, by that analysis alone are not of any particular value like the sacrifice seems to be an important part of contributing to real change well i think that's the that's the big issue is that on some level learning about inequality is one thing but the flip side of inequality is privilege and you know racism gives people privilege and do we want to get rid of that privilege is the real question and that's that's when the work starts to keep it like personal then like so say my privilege is an affluent white entertainer it's like i think sometimes i've got young kids you know and i think oh well i want my kids to have the sort of be- like I've been sort of lifelong inculcated into thinking I just want what's best for my kids. It's a sort of a narrow perspective that um, doesn't seem to have a racial dynamic other than it's taking place within the context of an, an already uh, racially sort of uh, segregated or hierarchalized sort of context. I was thinking though, like like when I knew we were going to be talking again, I was thinking about your young children, and I thought, well, like. I would be very interested to know if me wanting the best for my children is somehow at the expense of people, other people like your children. And I think like that's not something I would want to be a part of. Yeah, I guess when you put it like that's, and this is one of the reasons why we don't want to address the issues because that, I mean, that really is the reality, right? And even not even just like my children. And compare my children to if they happen to be born in South Africa or Nigeria or Jamaica, where my family are from, it's a completely different reality. And the truth is that the poverty that people experience in other parts of the world are because we have the privileges and the wealth that we do have. I mean, that that is actually true. So on that's a basic level, yeah, if doing the best for my kids and I get paid out of the taxes which exploit people in other parts of the world is actually negative for them. I mean, that is the brutal reality of it. Which is why people don't want to really learn that. Because once you understand that, then it's a bit grim in it. And then what do you do? Yeah, it, it, it is grim. I mean, on a, even a more direct level, you know, like that I was, I'm aware that there is child labour in, I think, I don't know, the Congo for minerals that will literally be in the phone that I use or maybe the laptop that we're having this conversation on. So it's a sort of, you don't have to look very far to see a direct connection between. Um, my privilege or our privilege 
and the exploitation of others. Now, you've talked a lot before about how you, like in your book, uh, Back to Black, like how you, what you would promote is a kind of, well, will you explain it? Because it seems to me that it's like a kind of a global idea of blackness as opposed to a national idea. Yeah, so that's one of the things, and I think that's when we think about privilege and some of the, even when we think about race and white privilege, and we have to think about that more concretely because, like I said, I have a lot of privilege that white people have. Like, just to be honest, it's true. Like, I have also, um, I'm black, so I don't have as much privilege, and I certainly got, I certainly have to face a lot of oppression. But if we're talking about structurally, I mean, I'm in the top four percent earners in the entire world, some crazy like that, right? Um, so we have to, we have to be honest and have that conversation. If you think about something like the killing of George Floyd, how we can see it, and we can see it because of. The smartphone, right? I mean, that's why we can see it. But like he said, the minerals for the smartphone, some kid in the Congo probably picked it out with his hands. And the reason we have the technology to share all these things around the world is because of their oppression. And I think sometimes that's that's my problem with some of the black politics stuff is if it's just national, then you're missing that bigger picture. Like there, there is no racial justice if you just have equality in the UK or have equality in America. The question has to be, racial justice has to be about global, which is why I'm articulating this idea of blackness and black radicalism. It is about saying, well, actually, no, it isn't just the issues that happen here. It is the kid picking the, going down in the mine in the Congo. They're just as important. And how do we build a politics that that provides for all of us? Because if we do that, then we've had revolutionary change. And indeed, it would be revolutionary change because uh, I suppose at the hard end of this argument is that it's cheaper to have children mining in the Congo than to responsibly pay for labor or even consider slowing the rate of consumer progress these sort of both of these ideas strike at the economic heart of a global system that is deeply embedded in capitalism and 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 I think that some of them, even though the civic, the idea of civic awareness that's been discussed in the last uh, since the murder of uh, of George Floyd has been like focused on civic inequality, the accept like white people are beginning to consider uh, our privilege in a different con in a different way. Um, what is unlikely to be addressed, I would say, is uh, like that. Like the idea of like, well, are you gonna what are you willing to give up? Yeah, and that, and that that for me is the big the big problem is that you can't like you you just cannot separate the the production that we have the society that we have from that oppression. If you know if the West paid the appropriate amount for the resources to make a smartphone, you wouldn't be able to afford a smartphone. It's that simple. If you paid the appropriate, if you did, didn't have slave labor, essentially slave labor. Uh, making your clothes you couldn't afford them as cheaply you couldn't have the consumer world that we have um and with so if you eradicate racism from the world the, our consumerism would disappear completely because african countries would be wealthy enough to charge a proper rate and workers in asia would be, would be wealthy enough to charge a proper wage so the whole thing collapses so the whole thing is predicated on racism 
It's pretty um, like even though what you your many of your ideas start off as radical. I mean, it seems I mean radical in the sense of end capitalism. You can't say anything more radical than that. Uh, it's sort of so straightforward that if you paid the appropriate price for the for the production of a smartphone, you can't have smartphones. So you see immediately now we're the guns are aimed at Zuckerberg at, at, by the most powerful people in the world are suddenly in the frame, and they ain't gonna be in the frame. Is what I feel like so like how does does something like this just ultimately get fed and bled back into the culture as a sort of a you know through forms of virtual signaling or just modifying language a little bit or some little gestures here and there or you know because the, the the real it sounds like the the truth is that it requires fundamental change to the entire organization of the relationships between those countries and western democracies yeah which is why i say whiteness is more of a psychosis and would be in terms of whiteness i don't think you can educate it because it's not like we have this idea that racism is kind of a bad a bad way of thinking through ignorance it's not true whiteness is produced by that political and economic relationship because you need to exploit people and you need kids to be dying at historic rates, who wants to believe? Nobody wants to believe that, right? Like, that would make you... Go, that would If you actually understood that, then surely we'd all stop, right? So all these myths and these ideas about progress, etc., etc., are there to keep us comfortable reaping the rewards of other people's oppression. And so, that's what, so if you don't change the economics, you're not going to change the, the ideas of it. You'll always just reproduce and become something different um, here. In a sense, we're not discussing radicalism or not radical. We're discussing off whether or not your interest in these subjects is authentic or not. Because if your interest is authentic, it sort of demands of you that you go, oh, right, I see. I am directly contributing to this because I live in the degree of comfort. And who uh, are we willing to go? I demand that this comfort ends. I demand it. I'm sick. Of... <laughs> <laughs> who's gonna do that? Well, that's the thing. Who's gonna Who's gonna do that? That's why actually. So I just finished this book and I just had to send it to the publishers and they were like, "Can you be more positive with the end?" Because <laughs> the book's all about just how fundamental racism is to the political economy, and I just kind of ended it like, "Yeah, it's terrible. I don't know what to say." Um, and so I was thinking about trying to. <laughs> I was thinking about trying to be a bit, a bit more positive. One of the positive things was so actually. The Back to Black book uh, that we talked about before, you know, that is really optimistic. It says, look, revolution is possible. It will come from the people who are the most oppressed. That actually isn't me. That is the people um, in Africa who are doing the mining, who are on this crazy, who's, who's every de- day is life or death. And can you build a political movement um, that can spur revolution? So I'm actually very confident that can happen and that can end, that, and, that, and that in itself would end capitalism. But on the other hand, there was... So, which is fine, right? But the question that publishers are asking me is, what can white people do? That was the real question. Um, Who's all your publishers yeah, asking yeah, saying, you? Well, yeah. So, I'm like, well, let me think about this. And the, the best I could come up with was, you know, one of the things that really does make the West different is, look, all empires fall eventually. Like, the West isn't even that old, historically, a couple hundred years. Um, but one thing that makes it different is that if you look at the way that we consume, which is really the problem here, that's going to kill their planet. That's going to kill all of us at some point. Like, so actually, it's not just in our interest, material interest. It really is in the interest of everybody to think of a different way to run the economy because we are literally going to end the whole entire world if we don't stop. So I think that gives us a bit of hope that maybe something new, different emerges. 
also i suppose that idea is transcendent of race so you know just giving you notes for the for the publication of the book if it's sort of like what you can do is become more ecologically responsible that that is not uh that is not along racial lines that particular division i see what you're saying there about white psychosis that it requires a kind of perspective where you one psychotically cuts off the idea of caring. It, it, this isn't just... This psychosis, I believe, is underwritten by capitalism in that I, I would argue the same thing is true when we with domestic homelessness. For me to be able to sort of just do like you know deal with homelessness near to me like geographically near to me it requires that on some level I have to think those people aren't the same as me and essentially are inferior because if I didn't think that I wouldn't live with it. I sometimes imagine Kindy a more advanced evolved a uh, group of people not on the basis of colour like, like like a like sort of a bit evolved of us right and they would go what the f- fucking hell was going on <laughs> like with the children mining and the homelessness that would be the stuff that's a bit like the things that we look back at and go what you did what yeah and I th- so I think look I mean is it possible you would like to think that the, the empathy is possible across all situations whether it be homeless people either it be, do you have to be black to feel connection to the poor black kid in Africa mining? You, you'd like to think that's not true, right? But the problem is the way that we're conditioned to think, uh, the way that we're educated into or schooled into this society, we think of ourselves as individuals. Um, we, the race thing is so important to how we define how much right to life people have. Um, that it just gets in the way. So, for example, one of the things that I was writing in the, the book I've just done is if you actually look at the way we think about human rights universal rights in the west it's all predicated on racism on a basic level because what it says is everybody has the right to life right a bit like animals um, but only white people have the right to civilization and so and if you look at how the un works that's exactly how the, the un works well the un will go in if there's a drought or they'll provide water or they'll provide the basics for life but the un aren't interested in the proper rights rights of equality that they don't and the un doesn't even talk about race at all in any of its millennium goals even though if you look at racial equality on a, on a global level it's worse like literally it is the light the hierarchies from the enlightenment ideas of racism black on the bottom white on the top and everybody else in between and that's the framework of rights that we have so like <clears throat> Like it's like we have economic globalization in one sense, like that you know this is one free market, we can get resources from everywhere, but when it comes to equality, there is still banished and abandoned territories, and you saying that that banishment occurs on racial lines. You could just look at the data and that's how that pyramid is formulated. yeah, the data is obvious and and if you look at some of the solutions from the left, they're they're just as bad, honestly, they freeze that inequality. So, for example, one of the ideas, universal basic income, uh, the idea that everybody should get a basic amount of money, they pegged that to subsistence levels. So if you if you get everybody that, well, that's like 10 times what it would be here as what it would be in Kenya, for example. So you're basically freezing Kenya at that level of poverty and saying, well, it's okay because you can eat and you can live and it's fine. But we don't actually have to deal with the imbalances between the West and the rest. We just got to make sure you can eat, right? And that's that's the universal framework of rights. The only way that I can envisage change of this magnitude is through a kind of spiritual awakening, by which I mean a willingness for 
individuals to say it's more important to me that the 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 inequality ends than it is that I am able to sustain a certain level of comfort. I I can see I feel how hard that is because it's like it's a push on the no not my stuff yeah and like and then and the other thing is to look at almost it's almost to look at the world and history in a true from a, as best we can ever hope to a truly global perspective and look at the relationship between the colonial past, imperial past, and the the human impact and trauma, and to sort of recognise this is something that needs to be resolved and its resolution is going to affect everybody. That's a nice idea. I I don't don't know if it's going to happen, though, I guess. (sighs) Why not, mate? (laughs) Yeah, why not? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm more like... Like I said, I do think the people who are oppressed always revolt. So I think that's a, that's probably a, a, a safer bet that you know the people who are at the bottom will will tip over the system, and then you don't have a choice. I mean, for example, if you had the African Revolution and you had you couldn't just steal that, the, the resources, well, that ends. Capitalism is done straight away. It would have to end. It would have to end. And then when it has to end, then people will think about doing something differently. I see. So like you would say like that if you're like, oh, what do we do to end racism? say why don't you support revolutionary politics in different african <laughs> nations and to bring in governments that aren't sort of junters or puppets set up by the west so that they control their mineral resources in the same way that like for the oil was controlled from the 70s 80s onwards which i believe had no negative global consequences <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not that not that realistic and i said I, I like a part of my response to this question is i'd Honestly, I don't know what white people should do, and I don't think it's my responsibility either. It's kind of my answer, like this. Although I'm try, try, I do try and channel Malcolm X a lot, obviously. Um, what did Malcolm say? Malcolm get Malcolm gives his speech to ballot or the bullet, which is actually really relevant today because because of he's literally saying, look, it's, the cities are going to burn down uh, if you don't give black people just what we need, essentially, and this is what you're having today. Um, but he does put out this kind of olive branch where he says America is the only country that can have a non-violent revolution. Look, look, just listen to people. What are we saying? You need massive transfer of wealth from the west to the east, um, supporting inf- real infrastructure development. I mean, it's not impossible. It could happen. Root about rep- proper reparatory justice is possible. It's unlikely, but it's not. It's not impossible. All right. At the moment, the conversation that's happening, say, in the United States is, uh, 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 in a way, quite rudimentary. It's about police brutality and visible oppression, an end to the kind of, uh, you know, Coopers in the park racist attitudes and a degree of sort of I would almost say protocol sensitivity with like something like the Joe Biden or when white people do blackface or whatever you know like I don't think part of the conversation like even though I've seen on social media the system isn't broken the system's doing what it's supposed to be doing which is like something that you know from my own perspective I've always thought about like well why are things not changing it's because it's operating for the people that have the dom the, the dominant um do you are you optimistic how do you how do you and i recognize it's not your job because you're a professor and a a black person to 
solve racial inequality <laughs> like the same as when i was always going on television saying there should be more economic equality or more fairness and etc people are like well what are you going to do then what are you going to do then frankly it got my bloody nerves because in a sense <laughs> it's a lot of pressure and like a, a lot of the answers that i propose are about collectivization democracy and people having enough access to the decisions that affect their bloody lives which i can see what you're saying about malcolm x's point that that would be easier to achieve in a country that at least has some sort of infrastructure even if that infrastructure has been warped to the interests of the elite yeah i mean i mean it's difficult and i think so one of the things so i'm actually writing the psychosis of whiteness book that's the next project and one of the first places i started was basically slating a lot of the critical whiteness literature that there is so there's a whole i hadn't only come across this just recently there's kind of a few books one one of those called white supremacy and me you wanted to, so you want to talk about race and they're almost like handbooks about if you're white what do you do and you can kind of do this do the work as they call it and it's just like ticking off boxes like don't talk about your colleague's hair and um or you know this is a, i'm reading it go what this is ridiculous like the idea that there is some kind of internal salvation within individual white people uh that can turn them into allies and then they're gonna solve the problem with us i mean that's that's that classic liberal education give people information and they'll they'll fix it which is just not the case really um and we'd have to be start talking far more seriously about you know how do we have structural change and all the change we're talking about mostly is reforms of police or individual change of white people that's not that's not that's not enough that's definitely done that i mean that was the old framework of the civil rights movement and that's that's what's got us to where we are today. So we needed a completely new framework, I think. Say if we just took one aspect of this problem, like policing, do you think that the would you say that the problem is so severe, entrenched and institutionalized that what would actually be required would be a kind of abolition of the police force and like right, let's start again with this new thing. It's gonna have a different name and from from its inception, it's like one of the things we want to make sure is that there aren't target groups that are regularly murdered. How can we bias away from that? Is that what you're saying? So that that that's an example of re- of uh, revolution in one particular area of public life rather than rather than reform. Yeah, but I think part of it with um you can't re- you can't have revolution in one area of social life like it's not possible right. the police thing is so tied into everything else um economic inequality you know why why are the police in the particular areas housing inequality um it's all the stereotypes that underpin the whole thing with black people being more aggressive and that it's just one aspect of it's, it's a symptom of all of those problems so you can't solve it separately on the other hand i think one of the more radical ways of thinking about this is people talk about abolition so prison abolition or police abolition, which does do that same question, which is, well, if you just don't, let's just start again. The police force is terrible. This just historically terrible. Let's get rid of it. How would we make our community safe? I mean, that's a better starting point, though, I think. Yeah, start again. Start again. Yeah, like why, like prison abolition, for example, where they're saying, well, look, most people in prison don't need to be in prison, if we're honest. So let's just think again. <laughs> who do we actually need to, to keep away from people and who don't we? Let's completely swipe the slate clean and start again do you like because i'm not pushing this on you i'm saying both of us together on this podcast with it not necessarily ever becoming government policy certainly not in the next few years (laughs) Uh, like think about like 
uh, like a few areas that you would nominate to be like <laughs> a, a kind of uh, pilot schemes for this. You'd say, yeah, pretty right. We say like, well, these are the things we're gonna sort of break down. See, like, because the thing I think and the conversations I have, because obviously I speak to a lot of white liberal uh, people, like, is like. W- they just want the Democrats to get in yeah. in America. Like <laughs> that's yeah, that's the problem, right? So I mean, that's that's the problem with this whole Trump thing, is the idea that you know you get rid of Trump and you go to Biden is better, or you just get the Democrats in is better. It's not at all. You need to be looking at fundamental. I mean, fundamentally, the real the basis of it is economics, right? Black people are more likely to be poor. That go that feeds into lot more likely to live in poorer housing, more likely to live in different areas. And that's the key area. So if we're talking about equality, is how would you deal with the economic disadvantage that black people have in America and worldwide as well? If you dealt with that issue, then you're going down the right the right road, I think. It's, it's easy to see why that is not embarked on, because that does indeed lead to revolution. Once you start unpicking that, you start saying, OK, right, so in order to create economic equality, we're going to have to <clears throat> redirect these resources. We're going to have to shut down these institutions. We have to regenerate this. We're going to, And like like we've discussed before, uh, the, and it was a sort of a pivotal moment in my understanding that if there were reparations to the ex- people exploited by imperialism, then you couldn't have the host nation anymore. That would be the end of America. That would be the end of Great Britain. So it's we're in a hive that's held together by certain ideas. So when like the nest is stirred by something like that, what's happening now? It's like like we said, like you said at the beginning of this conversation. I hope positive things come from it. Positive conversations, positive relationships, lovely moments like kneeling police officers or that guy that's like we'll march with you. But the the but but I sense that you see these as kind of gestural changes that in fact serve to support the existing power structures rather than meaningfully alter them. I mean, that's just performative. Uh, keeps it keeps the system in power. I think there is a genuine question we have to have uh, conversations, which is: it is possible to kind of take away some of the harder edges of inequality. Like that's possible. Like if you look at that's what's happened really over the last forty years, fifty years probably, is that you know I have a job I couldn't possibly have had fifty years ago. Um, for some of it is better, and if you looked at it globally, could you take a bit of wealth, spread it out a bit, make it a bit more equal, so everybody, so people aren't dying as much, which is also happening. If that's what you want, then that's then yeah, that's that's achievable. The question is, is that what is that the world we really want? Do we want a world with equality, which isn't based on white supremacy? Or do we want a world that is based on white supremacy, but does not as many people die because of it? <laughs> Could we have white supremacy, but diet white supremacy, if that would be okay with you? <laughs> no, because that's what I talk about. So this idea of symptom-free racism. I mean, that's what we're. That's oftentimes what we're talking about. We just don't want to hear the symptoms. So, like, for example, I would experience mostly symptom-free racism. Don't get stopped by the police, have a good education, have a good job, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what most people want, really, without having to change the whole system. The racism's still there, but can we just get rid of some of the symptoms? I mean, look, if that's the world you want to live in, eh, that's the best we can do with this system. But I would hope we had a bit more ambition to actually end the disease. That Peter Tatchell, the gay rights activist, once said that 
in his experience of you know 30 years of protesting and all of the stuff he done for lgbtq rights like that he said that after much struggle the power will yield on civil rights issues except for where it relates to financial and economic power like you know yes you can get married all right yeah no we won't have them overt uh, symptoms as you say of racism or other forms of prejudice but when it comes to who's in control of the resources and the power no thank you well then that's that's the difference so malcolm talks about we need to not so malcolm says look we don't want a civil rights struggle because that's civil rights. That's the limits of civil rights. You just have equal access to a really diseased system. And what you actually want is human rights. We actually all, in real human rights, everybody has the right to exist equally. And that does actually deal with the economic issue. If we all had the right to exist equally, then there'd be economic equality. And that's a completely different, a completely different uh, struggle. This, the reason that I, <clears throat> where I arrive is a place that I have, reached independently through my own uh you know not through the lens of race and racism but through the lens of inequality and oppression i suppose more based on class politics and my understanding of class politics that and you we don't want to as you have said before discuss the way that the spoils of capitalism are distributed and who gets this sort of slice of the pie but a a a system that is transcendent evolved or you know a revolution from the current system meaning that yeah we're not talking about how many congressional seats go to these kind of people or that kind of people or if many senate seats go to the or how many police chiefs of this color or that gender or sex you know we're talking about a complete ground so like i can i in a way Kindy, if the main um, machinery of communication is media that are owned by those interests, the, the dominant political class all comes from that background. And as you have said many times, you can have a uh, like Barack Obama as president and that that wasn't a watershed moment of, do you know what, from now on, we're not having this anymore, we're not having that anymore. It shows that these systems, these institutions sort of run on a longer timeline than any individual can meaningfully perforate or alter. Yeah, hang on a second. My kids are making really loud noise. I'm just going to shut them off. Go. Yeah, please. It's a, it's a bit, that's a real priority, actually, because how can you answer a question about how to reorganise? <laughs> Tell your children that the question that you're about to answer was how do we reorganise global politics? I, I mean... We were on the brink there of something quite special. Um, yeah. Um... I can remind you of roughly where I was going. Right, what are... This is why, like, you know, like, I'm always banging the same drum, basically, Kindy. It's that if, like, the because it comes from my own personal perspective, the only way that I can imagine being willing to live a completely... Like, a, a, li- a completely different life is if I start to believe that my individual identity, my co- constructed identity is not the most important thing in the world anymore. What is more important is my uh, conne- connection to other people, my connection to the planet, the co- my connection to my principles. For me, that is a kind of spiritual change as opposed to an ideology that's built on materialism capitalism being the ultimate materialistic ideology about the control of resources making profit from those resources human or otherwise so that's why i feel like that if a significant number of people 
sort of and I felt that this sort of coronavirus might provide a moment of like a sort of a hiatus where sort of people started to think what is my life I'm gonna die anyway what's important to me what who am I what's going you know like but like uh, I I wonder if I wonder if that's something that you consider particularly as your great hero Malcolm X as far as I can see approached in most of the phases even though what he was talking about is politics because how do you change the world about politics I feel that did he see things through a spiritual lens I feel like he did yeah I mean I think you're definitely right you need a different framework because you know too much of it is this being stuck in the political order that we're already in Democrat Republican Labour Conservative and that's just not going to get us anywhere and so you're right, there has to be a different dimension to this, uh, which is about solidarity and it is about my, looking at the world differently, it is about being collective. And in some ways, yeah, Malcolm was spiritual. I guess it is spiritual on some level. Like that connection. It changed his name. I mean, he did change his name, yeah. Twice. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> but, it's, but it's interesting that, so he was a Muslim, a devout Muslim, um, and spent a lot of time in like the Middle East, Saudi Arabia before he died. But he really separated out his, his, his religion from his politics. But you could still say his politics is still spiritual. So he, even though he changed his name to um, Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz, did that earlier than people think. He did that when he was in the Nation of Islam. Um, he still used Malcolm X because he said, look, that's the condition of the, the world that we are in. Malcolm X, that's, that's, that, I can't move away from Malcolm X because the conditions that created Malcolm X are still the conditions that exist. And if you think about when he talks about the connection of black people worldwide, I mean, there isn't really any material reason why I would care about the kid in the Congo, really. I mean, I'm doing well. He's not. It's not. The, what, it is a kind of spiritual thing, right? Because I'm black, because of that history, I have a connection to other black people, even when it's not really in my interest to do so. So on that level, it is, it's a sort of spiritual. You know, when you're talking about, yeah. And like, what is the room? Where is the room for even when you're talking about actual revolutionary politics as opposed to reformative liberal politics, where's the room then for alliances that transcend race? If if I am approaching the idea of revolution from the perspective of equality and awakening and not exploiting the world's people or the world's resources, and you're approaching it from your particular field of uh, expertise, education and experience, at, w- at what point does it become... Co- uh, cooperative um yeah no i think so I think if we agree that education this is... will be good for your book for white people <laughs> yeah, no, <it> is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if we agree that education is important and i think you have to separate schooling from education because what we get is schooling but actually a proper education that says look what is the world really like how do we understand it and what's the real what's really at stake then you know you need allies for that like you're probably the most you and uh, Piers Morgan are probably the two people that have made <laughs> have got my work out to the most people, right? For different reasons, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because you do have platforms uh, to put the work out. So that's really important. So you need to have those connections. You can't just be in a silo. That don't don't work like that, right? Um, also, in terms of following on Malcolm, a lot of following on from Malcolm. So Malcolm, one of the problems with Malcolm when he was in the Nation of Islam, it's like just really narrow, really national, has a kind of a restricted view that only black people should talk to black people and that's not really revolutionary. When Malcolm leaves, he says, well, actually, look, white people can help. Of course they can help. Can't join the organisation, but you can support the organisation. We've got an organisation that's doing this. Certainly lend your support to it, lend your voice to it, lend your money to it. Of course you can, right? So if there is a, a political movement that is revolutionary and that can build revolutionary change, anybody can get involved in it and really should get involved in it as well. 
it'd be different yeah. involving it in different ways obviously but involved in the same and across the board more generally you know it was black radical it was black radical politics that made me think about israel palestine i never thought about it before but there's a very clear i mean you can't you can't really look at that there's only one way to look at that conflict for a black radical lens same ways if you look at india same ways you look at class relations here so black radicalism isn't just about black people it's about a different way of looking at the world which it's about a different way of looking at the world which shows how you um can understand all social relations differently there's revolution happening in your household right under your roof <laughs> apparently there is and i'm writing a piece for the guardian about 20 20 things 20 things we can do practical things we can do in the wake of the protests so i'm really trying to be positive well, yeah, good. I know because I know it's not your natural perspective. Because I suppose you deal in the facts of the matter, and the facts of the matter are, are often not positive. But I'm kind of glad that the Guardian are pushing you to come up with right. Come on, let's for God's sake, let's do something practical. It's not a long list so far, but I'm trying. There'll be there will be twenty things. And I think no. I mean, I think that is. I think it's a. It's because we talk about revolutionary politics, people can turn off because. It can look so it's a big problem. If everything's broken, what do you do to fix it? But, you know, revolutionary change is the same as any kind of change. It starts at home. It starts piecemeal. It starts with little things that become big things. So we shouldn't avoid, we should never think it's too big to solve the problem. That is what happens, isn't it? Like, I feel like I'm, um, when people have like little flourishes of optimism about the police kneeling or like, you know, moments of, oh, see, look, it's going to be all right. Or like big peaceful marches people of many many colors i feel like a, and you must feel this a lot of the time surely like a bit of a party pooper going yeah but it's not structural change and actually that kind of liberalism can i introduce you to the wolf and the fox now the wolf is a clear predator the fox is a, a wily old son of a gun you know like it's sort of like how do like and i feel that it's the same with other forms of revolutionary politics that you would set put under the umbrella of black radicalism as a form of like is that people think that this is yeah a too big a task to contemplate that reaches out to i mean but what's the point if it doesn't help the kid in the congo and that the suffering of all of us then it, it, we are only discussing superficial change and symptomless change you, you can't the thing about it is so all for progressive change like they're gonna make small changes to make big changes but just because something cha looks different doesn't mean it's changed i think that's the key thing so police kneeling isn't changed and that's just not going anywhere like this 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 complete nonsensical that if anything it's just further embedding the problem because it's making you feel more comfortable towards the police who are probably one of the main problems with the way that racism is is, is delivered if you like um so the question is uh, what are the little things that are taking us in the right direction so the protest for example that's a good that's like whether i could say look the protests aren't going to change anything we've seen this before but the fact that you have thousands of people out on the streets thinking about these issues talking about these issues engaging with these issues that is a step in the right direction so the question is what's the next step in the right direction so that we don't come back around to where we are again in five years in a way we need to establish some very like some simple principles of like well we can no longer prioritize energy and profit over the sort of health of the planet as a whole you know that's a basic principle and and that what keeps coming up in this conversation 
uh, the, uh, the hard edge of the conversation about race is economics, that until there is meaningful economic opportunity, and that's going to require not that the, the, the current system is divided up differently, but that it is changed. Oh, I mean, completely. Replaced. I mean, even if you look at, and this is the big problem with America, you know, America, if you look about African-Americans, they were taken to America because of slavery to do labor. That's the point. That's why there's 40 million African-Americans in the country. Slavery ends. You don't need them anymore. You know, there's a boom in this after the post-war, there's a boom where you need workers and the people are getting to get somewhat better. Uh, but that's gone. I mean, look at the way work is going there. Work's just generally gone either to robotics or it's gone uh, to the developing world. That's what's causing these problems in America is that you actually have 40 million people who the society cannot provide for. It's just not there, not there. Like literally, and they're treated as surplus. So what do you do? What possible steps can you take other than radically rethinking the whole entire, the, the way the economy works? Because I guarantee you there aren't enough jobs, well-paying, decent jobs in America for African-Americans to have equality. It doesn't exist. So what do you do? You have to, if you, well, if you accept that, then you have to accept you need to have a radical overhaul of the society. Yeah. Right? Oh, bloody hell, Kindy. Well, thank you. I suppose like what I get from from this conversation, what I feel like is that uh, collectively, communally, that we need to concretize some r radical ideas so that it's like, so that we know what it is people are discussing. So for, in this conversation, the idea of, of like <laughs> abolition of the police force, abolition of the prison system, meaningful uh, re uh, like because like like you said there is a surplus uh, population due to the way that manufacturing industry has changed and it's yeah no prizes for guessing who's going to be the 40 million that that, that suffer so like uh, unless 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 the pinnacle of our achievement is no longer profit but a, a, an entirely different set of aims then this problem will continue to instantiate in various forms with the symptoms to some degree addressed but the underlying disease never altered yeah pretty much it sounds terrible doesn't it i mean i think there's two no, there are two routes throughout of it one of them is is the fact again the whole we do really need to rethink capital just generally but if you want to look at psychosis look at the way that even though the world is literally going to end shortly if we don't change, people still don't change. So this is, just tells you how impervious people are <laughs> to just basic facts, right? Um, but the other thing I say is to support the oppressed. I mean, look, there's been centuries of movements of people who are better placed to make the changes that we need. In some ways, like, this is the history of everything. Revolution, revolution is what tips things into a different and you have to say where is revolution going to occur where is it going to come from it's not going to come from white people in europe in america it's not like it's going to come from the oppressed and so we should be doing all that we can to support the oppressed to foment this revolution if that's what we want that's what i'd say right so at some point yeah thanks so at some point that's like going to mean that if if you know if not an armed struggle that's going to be the withdrawal of labor unionizing that that's where that that will come from like that this like the place the places that are most exploited the people that are most exploited recognizing that that they do have power collectively i suppose that's where some sort of global alliance of information and support could take place that you could have yeah an internationalist solution if that if there was you know if that the, where the support went where the focus went was to the 
to the most exploited and and i mean that not in a national sense but in an international sense if you think right okay so we've got to support the people that are working and then again you'd straight away be confronted with oh no we're fucking with the interests of some of the most powerful nations and corporate interests in the world how's this going to play on the nine o'clock news these people are terrorists these people they're pedophiles they're raping <laughs> as soon as you start getting it anywhere near that stuff i mean yeah that is i mean that's the other problem is if you look at the the way that things are controlled now i mean it's, it's the next level of control even in terms of um the way that things are produced. So it's very rare you have a product that's produced in one place because capital understands if it's produced in one place, you can shut down that place and it doesn't exist. And then you, you stop production. Now, I think that's why things are produced in different parts all around the world because you stop one place and just pick up somewhere else. Um, and then you look at the technologies of surveillance. And I mean, look, it's not an easy thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here saying it's going to be, it's going to be straightforward, but at some point, if the, you know, there's what, 7 billion people on the planet, the West, I mean, really only about 2 billion are doing decently. Most people are doing really bad. Like, most people in the world don't have a toilet in their house. You know, I think sometimes we forget the scale of the problem. Outside of the West, it's terrible. So if 5 billion people get together and say, this has to end, it will end. It's just how do you get how do you get that, that unity and that mobilization? I suppose what you'd need is a few... Educated and charismatic figures, some international anti-racist <laughs> Avengers, as it were, one of whom might wear a kimono in a dreadful reappropriation of another culture's <laughs> emblems. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but no, but that's that's the other thing is that actually it's ironic because the, te the technology to do the kind of thing that needs to be done is here. Like it's here in a way that it wasn't here previously. Like you can have. So I've had conversations with just people in random like crazy amount of countries during lockdown because of this. So in some ways, the system's created the technology for us to have the unity that we need. But because we have a technology, we're less interested in actually having that unity. So it's totally ironic. But actually, the tools are there if we do want to build a genuine international movement. And I think that's what that's what we should all be doing. Actually, is if we once you start having these conversations on a global level, it totally changes the nature of the conversation. My sense is that everybody would be happy, happier if freed from this psychosis, freed from the illusion that minor differences between people were worth elevating, that material privileges and comforts, while of course hugely seductive, if you can free yourself, again with a spirituality, Kahindi, if you can free yourself from the wanting, if you can free yourself from the wanting and needing, like if you can become master of yourself instead of master of others, then you are granted a cut. Now you are free to start thinking, all oh, right, now, now I have a mission, now I have purpose. I mean, I think right, when you think of the sort of nihilism loss emptiness banality of contemporary western life you know what is it you're going to do climb some tiny little ladder in whatever chosen field whether it's a good one or a bad one that you've ended up in or are you going to be part of something transcendent and glorious now when people start talking that way hitler it always <laughs> it starts it starts getting a little bit shaky but i still think i still believe in i think that somehow you can reach into people you can reach beyond their the narrow set of beliefs that we all of us have and awaken something in them that is great i think that there is a greatness 
Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's possible. I, look, I don't want to say it's not possible. Of course it's possible. <laughs> I'm trying to wrap up on a high. Yeah. You've, got, you've got to write 20 things tomorrow for Guardian readers to sort their shit out. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even <laughs> support me and my cockeyed optimism. No, look, I, oh, look, I, I think that... I guess, yeah, I guess that... Yeah, that's what I think that is. That's the, yeah, that's the thing, right? Look, there will be revolutionary movements. I think that's probably the route that this changes. Um... I think the message for me would be, look, it will be nice. I think you're probably right. Look, we maybe I'm a bit too pessimistic about the the capacity of people to overcome their material benefits. Um, and I would love to be proved wrong on this. Love to be proved wrong. It'd be great if it happened. But I guess the, the point is that we can't wait for people to get on board. We're just going to do what we're going to do. If you want to get on board, get on board. But if not, the train's going anyway. And if that train's successful, it's going to overturn the system anyway. And you'll have to get on board. So... I don't see you as pessimistic or optimistic. I see you as authentic, authentic. And when you speak, you speak from a place of knowledge and understanding. And I also see you as like kind. That's how I see you, which I think is a good tool to have when you're going around telling people that they are neurotic, (laughs) mentally (laughs) ill. (laughs) <laughs> and everything's got to be dismantled. <laughs> we do with a smile on your face. People will appreciate it more. <laughs> it's lovely, that guy who says we've got to deconstruct our lovely, comfortable house. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no idea. No, thank you. No, no, but this this part of this conversation, I think, is important. And actually, you have a platform uh, where you can, you know, re- did that, the, last, the last video we did, um, loads of people have got in touch saying, actually, it's made me think differently and reevaluate this. Oh, that's that's important. That's the, that's definitely the first step. Question is, can you keep everybody for the second, third, and fourth steps? I've gone through this sort of period myself where I got very um, uh, antagonised by, um, I suppose, what we would call liberalism because of what happened when I started getting involved in activism and doing stuff on YouTube and getting involved in that council estate that was getting taken over by developers, saying there's no point voting because it won't bring about any change. It will just be, you know, you know, you know all the stuff I said and. And like I, I, the ferocity of like, uh, like the Telegraph or whatever were nicer than some left-wing titles who might be getting twenty things you can do <laughs> in the morning. Like so, like and and like that, it sort of scarred me a bit. And it, but it also woke me up. It woke me up to something. It were like and what like you know? Do you know that filmmaker called Adam Curtis Kahindi? He made a thing called Century of the Self, Power of Nightmares. He sort of takes, he makes these brilliant films where he takes sort of historical, like sort of recent historical narratives and tells you how shit. His most recent one actually has that. Who's that Michael X dude that was uh, the like yeah like he tells an interesting story about that and how like the slum landlords and how it came out. It was really like he's he's a brilliant filmmaker. And I talked to him a lot about how at some point, you know, in the 90s, the left abandoned the idea of dealing with economic inequality and genuinely representing poor in favour of consequence free emblem emblems and symbolic gestural politics. It sort of became sort of bourgeois, I guess. I don't know. And what if I mean, if you look at that, that idea that you shouldn't vote, I mean, most people live in areas where it actually makes zero difference whether you vote. If yeah. I vote or not in my area, it makes no difference. So really, what am I voting for? I'm voting to signal that it's a symbolic thing, right? That I'm not with the Tories. And then if you work out, well, actually, who are you voting for? Until Corbyn, it was basically voting for the, basically the same thing with a different with a different label. And that has what is what's happened to the left, where it 
it's just the poverty of political philosophy. So the idea of saying yeah. you can't, you shouldn't vote is not worth it. Is somehow like some lunatic, lunatic thing to say. Well, why, why would it be? We should be thinking of different alternatives. The ballot box isn't going to solve solve this problem for us. Uh, we have to solve it with a different framework. And I sense that the left is migrating back in the, the a pre to in a pre Corbyn centrist direction. And like you know, in spite of repeated attempts, the Democrats resist Bernie Sanders, who like to people that are interested in radical politics would still seem like a very moderate type of politician well like everything's moderate if if you what your belief is is that the system needs top to bottom <laughs> raised to the ground but yeah no but the problem the, the the thing the left doesn't want to deal with is actually the left is one of the main ways the system maintains itself so by accepting that kind of piecemeal social democratic settlement as the only thing you could possibly get to basically and that's what we're talking about is either social democracy or neoliberalism or somewhere in between that's the whole problem like you wait when did we limit our imagination to it being one or the other um so the left for me the left is in fact in this book i talked about racism i didn't really talk about the right at all we had a whole got a whole chapter on the left what's wrong with the left because the left in some ways embeds the system more than the right because it just has abandoned any ideas of radical and radical change yeah, I, I, I inclined to agree from uh, because I think like yeah, what do you expect from Donald Trump? What do you expect from Boris Johnson? That's what they do. What you're surprised that they've one rule for them, one for the but like the left, it was like it was meant to be a like a football match. It was meant at least right. Like what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, mate. I like uh, that's really, really good for us. And uh, seems to me that you've got a combination of Guardian articles, Good Morning Britain, and some children to raise type <laughs> <laughs> duties. So I think if you can seed some um, radicalism into it, like saying to it, then which I'm sure you you do do all the time. If you can tell, but like make people confront that, how do we participate? The thing about me as a twelve-step white person is that I recognize I have to evaluate continually, like what I am doing. It's like I have to continually reset to instead of going, "You need to do this, you need to do that, you need to." Do, I have to go, "Well, so what do you do then, Russell? Where do you participate in this?" And it's like, right, right. By default, this is how I was born. These are the condition I'm in. I'm rich now this is like you know you're you i am a participant and then be honest with the deepest aspect of yourself when it comes to it's like oh my god like the the fear i have of the world and the plus the love i have of my children that makes you sort of conservative that really sort of sort of ties you down i don't mean conservative in a literal margaret thatcher way but in a kind of i just don't want anything happen to my kids it's a crazy fucking dangerous world out there you know, and that it, so it's asking. It, it's brave. You're. It's asking an incredible bravery of people to go. Like you've got to look beyond even the love of your children and the fear that you feel at the core of yourself. And like, what? Who are you really? Who are you? Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's something I struggle with as well. I mean, I work in a university. I get paid more than most people. Uh, I got a mortgage, and that's part of the, what the system does. Yeah. It? it gets you into it, and then you can't do as many things as you want to do because you just, you got to go through the treadmill. So. It's a problem for, it's a problem. It's just a problem for all of us. I'd like to overthrow the system, but I understand from this advert that these Nike trainers <laughs> do support revolution in a way that I can handle. But no, the positive thing, oh, yeah, but no, but the thing is, look, you are where you are. So like, some level, it just, just you have to struggle from where you are and accept that's where you are. And also, you know, everybody's, most people in this, in the West are in a, 
are in the same conflictual relationship um, as you're in. It's just a, it's more extreme because you have more money, right? But I'm no different. The next person is no different. You know, the West in general, I mean, if you're the poorest person in the West is in the top 85% of earners in the world or something crazy like that. So it's a thing that we all have to struggle with and we just have to struggle where we are. And we have platforms and opportunities that we can use to the benefit of bringing about meaningful change. You can see that the robustness of the system comes then in some degree, Kahindi, from the fact that by its own metric, it is a success. You know, you're in the top 85%. It's only when you start to consider other factors, like, again, spiritual, like, you know, do you, like, what is your life? Who are you? What does it mean? Like, you know, like, and that's why, like, you know, my, as a, uh, obviously, as a a white person, my um, admiration and respect and love for Malcolm X was, this is a person that he will die for what he believes in did die for what he believed in no questions asked he's got daughters he's that's it like you know like for me that's like oh my god it sort of makes me cry that there are people that are capable of getting touch in touch with that in themselves yeah no but but then even malcolm i love malcolm and malcolm did put his life on the line but one of the things he did before he looked after his kids the autobiography of malcolm x his family is essentially wealthy after this because ah. he sold so many copies and it was he made sure he did it um before he died uh, to make sure he looked after his kids. So even Ma- even Malcolm's thinking about. Just in case this don't work out, keep the rights. <laughs> 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 but it's, and it's actually interesting the legacy then of Malcolm's family having this wealth from Malcolm's work, and then what happens? What happens with that? Actually, like and actually the revolutionary trajectory of Malcolm does get destabilized by that because now you got a rich family, so it does it changes the nature of it. Um, so it's a, like I said, it's a problem for all of us. Yeah, it's a powerful, powerful machine we have found ourselves in. Yeah, we need to be positive though. Um, revolution is possible. That's why I say revolution is possible, um, and anything that can help to bring about revolution has to be a good thing. I'm calling this podcast "Revolution Is Possible." This episode, under the skin with Kahindi Andrews, "Revolution Is Possible." <laughs> Thanks, mate. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Kehinde Andrews and me. I was in it as well. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. You can tag me at Russell Brand. You can tweet me at, yeah, at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag Under the Skin. Sign up to my mailing list if you want a crushing disappointment <laughs> of never getting a video at russellbrand.com where you'll gain exclusive mailing list only news and video content. That's a lie. I'm just reading this off a script. I'm just an automaton right now. We'll be back next week with Judd Apatow. Is that right? Yeah. It's Judd next week. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this conversation with Kehinde, and why wouldn't you have done? There's nothing wrong with it. It was a brilliant conversation. Check out these other episodes with Dear Khan, brilliant woman. Where, where is she from? Sweden, but she's like a Nor- Swedish. Norway. Pardon? Norway. Norway. Yeah. She's a Norwegian woman, Muslim, spot on, good gear. You'll love it. In fact, I know she'd uh, posted uh, a bit of our stuff the other day. We should, why don't we repost that or like it or whatever you do? Yeah. You young people. <laughs> so check out Dear Khan. Her episode's good. Check out Dr. James McCleary. That dude's a serious teacher. And Henry Giroux and Brad Evans. And Jen, I will point out that you've misspelt Henry Giroux. It wasn't me. Who are you blaming? Charlie? Where's the solidarity? Yeah. <laughs> Where's the solidarity among women? Standing up to the patriarchy. Where's it gone? I'm not the patriarchy. If anything, (laughs) with my tricky mix, I'm the matriarchy. (laughs) Welcome to tricky mix matriarchy. It's a tricky old mix. Tricky mix. 
Well, you can keep checking my YouTube channel. If you notice there's been an update on the app, how do you feel about that? It's bordered differently. I like it. We've got loads of YouTube content. You'll love it. Uh, and also, thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. It's really allows me to create good quality content and live a nice life. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>